So if you have your Bibles or your phone or your tablet, jump right into Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They have Bibles you can use today. They have Bibles you can have. Uh, We've passed out more than 600 Bibles that people have kept since we began our church two and a half years ago. And if you need one, just grab one from our ushers. Put your name in it. This is yours to keep. Please start reading it uh, and learn about who Jesus is and what his plan for your life is. That's what we've been trying to do this January at Journey Church International. We're in the middle of a series, if you take your sermon notes out of your bulletin, called The New You Resolution. And we have opened the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and we're trying to learn what Jesus has for our life. We find when we read through the book of Matthew that the very first words of Jesus' ministry in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, are in Matthew 4, 17, and he just has one line, and it's basically a word of ministry. He says, repent. And the word repent means change. In Matthew 4, 19, Jesus has his second line of ministry. And that word is, he says, follow me. So Jesus is basically saying in Matthew 4, 17, change the way you live. In Matthew 4, 19, become more like me. And as we get to Matthew chapter 5, at some point, someone must have asked a very good question. How do we change the way we live and become more like you? And Jesus said, good question. I'm glad you asked. And we are studying his answer Last week, today, in the next seven weeks, in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that we said was going to teach us these three things this January. The new you resolution that we'll talk about today and next Sunday is learning how your spiritual DNA determines your spiritual blessings. And that's what today will be about. Jesus said it's what happens on the inside of you spiritually that determines really how God blesses you on the outside. Jesus is going to tell us next week as we study the rest of Matthew 5 that if we can change the way you think, then you can change the way you live. Six times in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you thought it was this way, but it's actually this way. And you've heard it said that you're supposed to do this spiritually, but really you should do this spiritually. And all your life you've done it this way, but if I can get you to do it this way, things will be radically different. Jesus says, if I can change the way you think, I can change the way that you live. And then the big, the big final uh, message is going to be lesson number three. Jesus is going to tell us, until we learn the spiritual heart behind our religious habits, there's going to be a disconnect between us and God. Jesus was talking to religious people who had unbelievable spiritual habits. They came to church more than we do. They read their Bibles more than we do. They probably prayed better than we do. They, they served and they greeted and they ushed and they, they, they taught children and they, you know, they passed out donuts and coffee. I mean, they did everything better than we did, but there was a disconnect between what they were doing in their heart for how they understood who God was and how he wanted to love them. And Jesus says, until you learn the heart behind the habits, even if all your habits are perfect, there's going to be a disconnect between you and God. So he's trying to build this connection between people and God so that we can change the way we live and become more like Jesus. Today, we're just going to look at the first one of those challenges, our spiritual DNA. And we're going to look at the spiritual DNA that the Bible says God blesses. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, before we dig into the teaching of this message, I want to pray this morning, and here's why. I have at Journey Church International preached about, since we began, about 120 messages since our church began a little over two years ago. I can't think of one that has impacted me as deeply throughout the week as this one has, as God revealed some real flaws in me that, that I've been struggling with even this morning to come to, to grips with. And as I came in this morning, my, my hope is that just a little bit of what God has done in me through this kind of mirror of Scripture that showed me some change I need to make, my prayer is that just a little bit of that will be reflected back to you through what God has been teaching me. So we don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask you to just quiet your heart. And at the beginning, let's just ask God to speak to us for what we need to hear. And maybe we can leave here today changed and a little more like Jesus, which is the whole goal of this series anyway. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of Matthew 5 and for kind of unlocking the mysteries of the Beatitudes for me this week to show me where I'm lacking spiritually. And God, I pray for the men and the women and the children and the teenagers that are in this service, God, that you would help us today identify some areas that we need to change to become more like you. And God, that by doing those, the world may see more of you in us, be more open to who God is, be more open to what Jesus does in the life of someone. And God, that you might begin to, to change all of our spiritual DNA a little bit through what we're going to hear this morning. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Hey, one big thing I learned this week as you look on your sermon notes that I never knew before. I always thought the Beatitudes were a list of nine things that did certain things in your life. The Beatitudes are not really a list of nine. They're actually two lists of four and then kind of summary, a summary section. The Beatitudes divide nicely into two sections when you study them rather than read them. We're going to find out that the Beatitudes divide first into the spirit that God blesses. Jesus is going to describe for us the relationship that a person has who is really blessed by God. He's, he's going to show us how someone feels who's really close to God and who, who feels like God is just all over their life. And then he's going to show us in section two the actions that God blesses. These really aren't just nine, nine things, a list of nine things. It's really two lists of four that Jesus says people... People who are shaped this way in their spiritual DNA are going to be blessed this way in their spiritual life. And we're going to study those two sections today and see how they fit together. And it's, it's the connection of the sections today that really is going to put the magnifying glass on your spiritual life like it did mine. The first section we're going to study is the spirit that God blesses. John MacArthur says the first four Beatitudes deal entirely with inner principles. Principles of the heart principles of the mind. They are concerned with the way we see ourselves before God. So the first four are, are ways that we interact with God. And here would be my question for you. How do you see yourself this morning before God? I would ask it this way more tangibly. If you were to rate yourself between one and 10 spiritually, what grade would you give yourself? I challenge you to write it down on the top of your sermon notes, but we all know our neighbor's going to look at it. We really don't want them to know what we're thinking spiritually because that's kind of how, how we do it. So just in your head, what would that number be? How do you see yourself before God? Because MacArthur says that to really understand this, we have to understand basically our relationship to God because Jesus is going to tell us when we see ourselves this way, it brings blessing into our life. 
And he tells us four ways that people can see themselves to be blessed. In Matthew 5, 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you and I know what it means to be poor. Uh, We know the definition of what it is to be financially poor. There may have been times in our life where we have felt very poor, or we might know some people who are struggling right now in poverty. We may go serve the poor, but to really understand this spirit, we have to understand the word. Because in the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, 26 books, all those books were written in a Greek language. And there's a lot more words in the Greek than there are in the English, and there are actually two words in the Greek language that the New Testament translates poor, and they're different words and they mean different things. And they're told in different stories. Jesus used one of the words for poor when he said there was a poor widow who brought to the temple everything that she had, and she only had two mites, but she gave them all. There's a word for poor in the New Testament that means doesn't have much, but, but has some. Um, probably poor people in America don't have much, but they have some compared to poor people in third world countries. Then there's a word for poor that Jesus used when he told a story about a, uh, a, a beggar named Lazarus. He said there was a rich man who lived in luxury and he, he ate fine foods and wore fine clothes every day. And there was a poor man, a poor beggar who laid at his gates named Lazarus. And he had sores on his legs that the dogs would come and lick and he would beg for food. This word poor meant someone who has nothing. Not someone who has a little bit, but someone who has nothing. Poor in spirit is the second word. It's the word for someone who has nothing. No ability to basically connect with God outside of God. Now, every time I think of the poor beggar named Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, I think of a time that I was in Beijing, China. I had gone over there to meet with some humanitarian workers who were doing missions through building water wells in western China. And they were giving us a tour of downtown Beijing and of Tiananmen Square and of the Forbidden City, which is one of the oldest standing cities in the world. You may remember Tiananmen Square for the big revolution that happened there where the the young Chinese students stood down the tank. Um, And as we were leaving Tiananmen Square to go into the Forbidden City, there's a road that runs right in front of the Forbidden City. If you've seen the picture of that young man standing before the tank, that's right where he was standing. And someone had sat a young man. And when I say young man, he had to be no younger than 10. He had to be no older than 15. He was probably 12 or 13. And they sat this disabled kid who was a beggar. And I've never seen anyone look like this in my entire life. He was sitting there and and he, he had been born deformed where below his knee, he didn't really have legs. He had limbs, but he didn't have legs. He didn't have feet. He didn't have lower legs like you and I have. And someone had just sat him on the road and his knees were wrapped, but he had these, basically he had limbs that were just kind of shooting in every direction. And he was sitting there with a smile on his face. Someone had propped him up against the pole and he had a cup and he was begging. And his legs were so filled with sores that like it, I've only seen stuff like it on like CSI television shows of people who have wounds. Like you literally, it looked like you could see inside of his legs and he was sitting there begging. It, it was the type of moment that you looked at once and you, you couldn't look back or you would pass out. It is one of the most graphic memories in my life. And I remember seeing this young kid sit there and I remember just reaching in my pocket and every coin that I had that I had exchanged over from American currency, I dropped in his cup without looking. And every time I think of Lazarus, I think about that kid because I think here's someone who had no chance at anything. This isn't someone who had a little bit. This is someone who had less than nothing and was in a circumstance where they had no hope at all. 
this is the word that Jesus uses for poor. People who in their spirits believe they have no hope at all are actually going to result in being blessed. Jesus is trying to say the poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty apart from God. They're people who are desperate for God to do something in their life. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe in a minute, from a ministerial perspective, we live in a country, America, that doesn't have much spiritual desperation. And I've seen it once, but I don't believe we have it consistently, consistently because of what I saw the one time. Now, all of you remember where you were Tuesday, February, uh, Tuesday, September 11, 2001, when the planes hit the Twin Towers. It's a graphic moment that's embedded in the memory of anyone who was over the age probably of 11 or 12 that day. I remember where I was Friday, September 14th at noon. Because I, I was working at a church, I was the youth pastor of that church, and I, I basically, as a youth pastor, I was just, I was a guy who, I played basketball with kids, I ate lunch with kids, I preached on Wednesday night, I mean, I was just a youth pastor who didn't do anything with adults at the church, I had been there less than a year. And Friday was the staff day off, and the President of the United States had called for churches across the nation to be open on Friday, September 14. It was gonna be a national day, a national moment of prayer for people who, who really felt a need to connect with God. And I remember they called me because I was a low man on the totem pole and they said, hey, you go unlock the church in case anyone shows up and wear a suit, and, you know, in case anyone needs a pastor. Uh, but we were just sure no one was gonna come. And I remember going to the church. I remember unlocking it and turning on the sound system and playing some music. And I remember the noon hour came around and 500 people came from all over the city desperate to just be comforted by God. Now, I would never wish upon any country in the world what happened in the United States on September 11, 2001. But I would wish upon the heart of every Christian what happened in the hearts of people on September 14, 2001. Because desperation makes great Christians. When you really need God, according to Matthew chapter 5, 3, he shows up. That's what God's saying. When you're desperate for me, I'll be there. But we live in a world that, that doesn't have much desperation. I started thinking about the challenge I've given our church. My, my goal for our church this year is that people will be in church more this year than they've ever been in their life. And, and I've been praying people would be more committed this year than they've ever been before. And I started studying for my message and, and it, it was like God revealed to me, Christian people don't have a commitment problem, they have a desperation problem. It's not about commitment, it's about need. It's not that people need another thing in their life, they just don't need me in their life a whole lot right now. And Christian, if you could teach people to ha how to be desperate, you wouldn't have to teach them to be committed. They would commit themselves. See, if we were poor beggars, and our church was a food bank, and every Sunday we opened to give you the only food you would be nourished by in the week, none of us would say, I'm not hungry, I don't care. And spiritually, if we would see ourselves as malnourished in desperate need of God, and if we would see the church on Sunday morning as the house that would bring spiritual nourishment for the week to come, I believe we wouldn't have a commitment problem. Our desperation would, would cause a commitment issue where we'd have to probably find another place to be because people needed God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit because when you're desperate, I show up. The poor in spirit could be defined best according to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul talked about all the good things he had going on in his life spiritually, and he said, it wasn't until I learned not to be spiritually committed but spiritually desperate that I really found Jesus. And in Philippians 3, 8, he said, what's more? He said, I consider everything. And he talked about all his religious commitment. And he said, I consider all those commitments a loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. He said, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. The poor in spirit are those who believe their best spiritually is garbage without God's mercy in their lives. And they don't come to church because they need another thing to do. All of, I guarantee you, everyone in here has something to do that they would benefit from doing at this hour in their life. But if people will see themselves as hopeless without the Savior and desperate, the commitment takes care of itself. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they're gonna be comforted. Now this is one of the greatest oxymorons in scripture because the word blessed in the English language really means happy and the word mourn means sad. So Jesus is saying blessed, happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. Now that makes no sense at all until you really understand what Jesus is trying to say. Who, who are those who mourn? Those who mourn are those who have been broken over the results and the reality of sin. Those who mourn are, are those of us who have personally felt the failure and guilt of sin and it's driven us to such a place that in our brokenness we reached out to God or those of us who have been impacted by the consequences of the reality of someone else's sin. And it's driven a stake so deeply inside of us. This is the teenager that tells me often I will never get divorced because of what it did to me and my little sister or little brother. It's people who have felt deeply the effects of what sin does and brokenness has allowed them to cling to God. God said, blessed are you when you're truly broken because in that moment, you're gonna draw closer to me. In 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, Paul said, I hate when people are broken spiritually, but I love it too because it helps them be closer to God. Paul said, godly sorrow brings repentance. There's that word again, change, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness? What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Paul said, I hate it how badly you were hurt by the consequences of sin. Your sin, someone else's sin. I hate what has happened to you, but I love what's happening inside you because as you process through this, you're gonna be changed from the inside out and you're gonna have the opportunity to be closer to God. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Now, this is an interesting word, and because it rhymes with weak, we often think that's what it means, but meek is actually power, but it's power under control. The best picture of meekness is a horse that has been broken. A horse that has been broken has not been stripped of its power. It's just had that power put under the control of someone else. It's had its power funneled into productivity. And God says, listen, I don't really want to change the best parts of you. I just like to be in control of them so I can funnel them for your, your maximum productivity. I don't want to strip who you are and your personality and your fun and, and the things that you do that make you you. I just want you to give me yourself and put yourself under control of me because I believe I can funnel who you are for maximum productivity in life. So meekness is coming under the control of God. Meekness is actually strength that's given away. Meek, the meek are those people who don't always have to flex their spiritual muscles, but they say, God, I'm gonna build my spiritual muscles up as much as I can, and then you can tell me when to flex them. But I'm gonna give you control of who I am and what I have the ability to do. And then Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this means something that I never understood it to mean before this week. I thought this was a, a nourishment type of thing. But you know, when you're hungry, go get something to eat. 
This is not the word hunger that translates to food. This is the word hunger that translates to drive. It translates to ambition. This type of hunger is what Peyton Manning and Tom Brady each feel in their gut as they face off today uh, in Denver. They've got this drive to get to one more Super Bowl. There's this thought that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who have ambition for Jesus. These are people who, who they, they actually want to do something for Jesus in their life, and they, they've gone from just wanting to be saved by Jesus to wanting to be used by Jesus. You know, when, when we talk about why people follow Jesus, there is this question of motivation. Why did you become a Christian? And growing up in the world that many of us grew up in, many people would answer, number one, why did you become a Christian? To be with Jesus when I die. The question posed to many of us at youth camps and youth rallies and evangelistic crusades were if you don't want to go to hell and you do want to go to heaven, accept Jesus. And most of us became a Christian because when we died, we wanted to be with Jesus. But at some point, our perspective changed and Christianity doesn't become about the next life, but this life. And this hunger and thirst for righteousness are those whose motivation, why did you become a Christian, is answer number two, to be like Jesus while I'm alive. I've got this ambition not just to be with Jesus when I'm dead, but to be like Jesus when I'm alive. And man, I've got this thing that drives me to know Jesus more. This was the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ. He had this drive to be more like Jesus. And this is the whole tone of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 4.17, change. Matthew 4.19, become more like me. How? He's showing us how. And he's laid out these spirits. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I'll be real honest with you. I look at those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who will do anything to become more like Jesus. And I think of myself in that category. And if you were to ask me to stop taking the quiz right now, I'd grade myself pretty well on these four spirits. I would say I think that really is the spirit of my heart. I think it describes who I am. But is this really what we look like on the inside? And, and maybe a better question is, how do we know whether or not this is how we look like on the inside? How can we know what the inside looks like? Jesus is going to finish this portion of the Beatitudes, and he's going to say, you can tell what's on the inside by the actions that result from the outside. And that's section number two. Jesus says, let me show you the actions that God blesses. But I want you to notice here, the actions that God blesses are actions. They're not habits. If we were to ask you to put on a piece of paper 10 things that characterize a Christian, most of us would write habits. Oh, they go to church. They read their Bible. They give in the offering. They've memorized some scripture. They go to small groups. They serve in the ministry. They served at vacation Bible school. They wear a Jesus shirt. They wear a WWJD bracelet. They listen to Christian music. We would give habits. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be known by your habits. I want you to be known by your actions. Your habits are what you do. Your actions are who you are. And if this is the spirit in you, these will be the actions in you. And Jesus gives us four actions that we're going to break down. He said, people who are really the spirit that I describe, they're merciful. They're pure in their heart. They're peacemakers and they're righteous. But here's what I've learned as I looked at this, as I looked at those, it's like God gave me the key this week to unlock the understanding of the Beatitudes. It was like God showed me Christians, our actions are all a result of our spirit. And each action has a corresponding spirit. If you want to know that you have that spirit, your action will tell you because Jesus, the perfect teacher, laid it out that if you feel this way, you'll do this. And if you feel this way, you'll do this. And if you feel this way, you'll do this. Let me show you how it works. Jesus says the, the, those who are poor in spirit, 
Those who believe that they're garbage spiritually without God, their actions are merciful. People who believe that God has done a great work in them are not judgmental towards other people. How do you want to know if you're poor in spirit, you have extreme mercy towards other people who used to be where you are? You know, a few years ago, probably 15 years ago, Rick Warren and his church Saddleback started a a ministry, kind of a counseling ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And the thought was that people from all walks of life that were dealing with all sorts of things could come and just sit down and talk, not with trained counselors, but with people who had been there and done that. And Rick basically said this, he said, you know who I want ministering to people going through a divorce at our church? People who have been through a divorce because they'll be, they'll be more merciful. And you know who I want dealing with those in our church struggling with alcoholism? I want the recovering alcoholics because they're gonna be really merciful. And you know who I want talking to the men and women who are struggling with pornography? I want those who have come through a struggle with pornography because they're going to be more merciful. You see, those who understand what people are going through, those who have a soft heart for what others are going through, those who believe that if God hadn't touched them, they'd be worse than anyone, they're more merciful with everyone. And you know you're poor in spirit if you have this extreme spirit of mercy to those who aren't where you are yet. On the other hand, Show me someone who doesn't have much mercy for those struggling in any type of sin, and I'll show you somebody who believes they're spiritually superior. I'll show you someone who thinks that they, they were just born with a little better spiritual DNA, and, and it might not have been much, but they had a little bit to offer God while this person has nothing. See, people who are poor in spirit, people who are desperate for God are really merciful to people who are desperate for God. And there's a real lack of judgment and much mercy shown. I looked at the spirit. How do do we know that we have the spirit of those who mourn? How do we know we're broken over sin? Because if we're broken over sin, our actions become pure. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. How do you get pure in heart? You get broken over the impure things in your life that cause you pain and that cause you suffering. And you know, I I probably, if, if if I could sit down and get to know you long enough, and find out the things that you're really passionate about, passionate about being pure about, I could probably identify the things that you've been broken over. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a, a, a theological statement on this issue, but I, I'll turn 36 in two weeks, um, and I've, I've never had a drop of alcohol in my life. I don't drink. And you say, why is that? It's not really a, a theological stance. I have a lot of friends who socially drink. I, I have ministry friends who, who drink. Why, why am I different? Because my grandfather was a raging alcoholic. And my dad, when my dad was in middle school and high school as the captain of his sports teams, my dad, every night before he went to bed, had to go to all the bars in town and find grandpa and bring him home. And he was either in one of the bars or in the jail, and dad said, I knew all the bar owners and I knew the sheriff by name because dad was either in the bar drinking or he's in jail for fighting after drinking. And my dad said, Christian, because of that upbringing, because I saw that, I never had a drop of alcohol. I never want you to. Dad, cool, get it. As I grew and got older and developed my own theology and realized I got to make my own choices and not everyone who drank became grandpa, um, I began to deal with people who, who, who had had bad things happen because of alcohol. And I started looking back on my life and some of the greatest heartache I experienced as a teenager and a college kid in relationships happened because of the influence of alcohol. And I looked at the, some of my teammates, some of the worst things that happened to me in my sports life, kids getting kicked off of teams and out of school happened because of alcohol. I think about the funeral I went to uh, when my friend, junior year in high school, got drunk and got in his pickup and 
drove off the road and killed himself. I, I thought about those things and I thought, you know, I've dealt, I've dealt with too much brokenness to have this in my life. And my story is not for everyone, but it is for me. I, I saw a girl on the sidewalk this, this, uh, this morning that I've known for a decade. One of my great friends at the church who used to be in my youth ministry. And I haven't seen her in months and months and months. And when she walked up, I gave her a hug and I said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm 25 days sober. See, I have, when you see the broken side of life, it just doesn't allow you to go there. At 9.15, I had someone come up to me after I shared this in that service. And he shook my hand and said, Christian, thank you for saying what you said today. Today's day 670 for me. I got a flyer in the mail from your church when you started, and I was broken. And it's, it's something that I had to purify m- my life from. You know, I, I, don't, um, I, I don't smoke cigarettes because mo- both of my grandparents who smoked all their life died of lung cancer. When you've been hurt by something, you don't repeat it. I quit chewing tobacco when I was in college, even though starting as a middle schooler and all through high school, you know, when you grow up in redneck southern Ohio, I mean, you don't chew bubble gum, you chew tobacco. That's, that's what we did. Um, but in college, almost all of us quit chewing because one of our friends got jaw cancer and they had to cut off one whole side of his jaw. You see, when, when you've been broken by stuff, you get purified from it. I try to never use foul language. Not because I think Jesus is going to get mad at me and I'll, and I'll go to hell. But I was thinking during the first service of worship, I can remember the last time I cussed at my wife. I can remember it like it was a minute ago. And I can remember driving away from our house at 9429 West 123rd Street in Overland Park about 10 years ago and her standing in the driveway crying. I cussed at her and I slammed the door and I drove away. And I remember thinking as, as I saw her standing there, if I don't get these words out of my Rolodex, it's going to be my kids next. And things that break you purify you. And what Jesus is saying is you're blessed when you're broken because it creates this purity in you that is just so healthy spiritually. And if you can take the results and reality of sin and say, I just can't experience that anymore, it's going to result in a great spiritual purity for you. Jesus said the spirit of meekness, not always having to flex your spiritual muscles, results in you being someone who can create peace. He used the word peacemaker. You know, if you ask me what the biggest problem in our church is, what the biggest problem in your old church is, what the biggest problem in your workplace is, and what the biggest problem in your home is, probably the answer is the same for all those. It's some kind of conflict and relationship tension. We live in a world that's filled with conflict and relationship tension, and it has been since the the first day of creation that Adam and Eve got separated from God. Somewhere in some hallway tomorrow, someone's going to be talking about you or you're going to be talking about them. It's just kind of the way that our world works. And Jesus said if we could develop a spirit of meekness, we could be the people that bring peace to all this crazy conflict that exists in our world. And I started looking at at being a peacemaker, and I thought, Lord, what keeps us from being peacemakers? And there's really kind of two counterfeits of meekness, this thought of being controlled strength. And the first is insecurity. I thought, why aren't more people peacemakers? Why, Why don't more people have the strength to go create peace in contentious moments. And I felt like God revealed to me that one of the biggest 
fights against meekness is insecurity. Because insecurity talks about someone while meekness talks to someone. Insecurity is passive aggressive. It thinks it but never does it. Meekness is straightforward. If I think it, I'm going to come to you. Insecurity questions the motives of all, especially towards them. But meekness trusts the heart of God in people and said, I'm just going to have to trust God on this one. Insecurity subtly tears people down while meekness privately builds people up. Insecurity will start a conversation behind your back, but meekness will lovingly finish a conversation face to face with you. See, I believe we've got an insecurity problem in the church, in the home, in the businesses, in the schools, in the hallways, in the families, in friendships, in marriages. I believe we've got this insecurity problem in that we can't just have the strength to just be straightforward with people and we end up creating more conflict. Because we say, well, you know, I just, you know, I'm just, I'm not real confrontational. Listen, when you share your concerns about somebody, but you don't confront that somebody, you're a gossip. You're not soft-hearted. According to scripture, you're a gossip. Sharing concerns without confrontation is wrong. And meekness says, I'm just going to figure out how to do this straightforward. On the flip side, most people say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to be straightforward then. But it's uncontrolled strength. Uncontrolled strength tells people off while meekness has conversations. Uncontrolled strength confronts people at the wrong time. Meekness always waits for the proper timing. Uncontrolled strength just runs over people while meekness tries to run alongside people. The goal is not to destroy anybody but to build them up. Uncontrolled strength breaks people emotionally while meekness creates emotional trust. You know, somebody, people, you know, I hear people say all the time, well, you know, I just, I've got the gift of prophecy. I just have to tell people what I think. And I think, no, you have the unspiritual gift of being a jerk. That's not a spiritual gift. Telling someone off is not a spiritual gift. Sharing concerns about somebody else behind their back is not a spiritual gift. Those are both unspiritual gifts. And as I was studying this this week, I thought, my Lord, it could be that meekness holds the very key to peace at home, to peace in friendships, to peace with extended relatives, to peace in the workplace, to peace in the church. It could be that meekness, that one little spirit of controlled strength, just being honest, working through things, bringing peace, could be the thing that literally could change every relationship that you have. You see, power under control, according to Jesus, results in peace in difficult circumstances. The difficult circumstances are not going to go away. But peace can come from it if we will have people who, pow- in, with power under control, practice meekness. And then there's this spirit of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a spirit of those who just can't get enough of God. And Jesus says they, the end result is they end up being righteous. The word righteous could be translated real well, right living. They just, those who can't get enough of God, they end up being righteous. It's, it's Matthew 4, 17 and Matthew 4, 19. Change the way you live and become more like Jesus. How? If you hunger and thirst for God, you're going to become more like Jesus. It's kind of the, it's the end of this spiritual equation. However, you and I both know that people who really are poor in spirit, those who have been broken over sin, those who try to be meek instead of insecure, uncontrolled bullies, those who really just can't get enough of God, even in the Christian world, we see them kind of awkward. You know, they, they, somebody wrote a book several years ago called Jesus Freaks. It's, it, you know, and it was probably a Christian who, who coined that phrase. When, when people really try to pursue God 
it comes off as awkward to other Christians. And Jesus says, get ready because you'll be judged. But he said something really interesting. He said, you're going to be insulted, you'll be persecuted, you'll be questioned. People are going to think maybe you're a little weird. But he said, don't worry, the prophets were treated in the exact same way. And I thought to myself, well, who, who were the prophets and how are we like prophets? The prophets were those who were able to see into the future and they were able to tell people how following God now would bless them later. Prophets were people who would tell people, if you will do this now, I promise you'll have this later. But they seemed to be people who were always in others' business because they understood how to live in order to be blessed and they wanted other people to capture that as well. And I thought, Lord, how do we see into the future to tell ourselves How do we tell our future selves how to act now so that we can be blessed? And then I'm reading through the paper on Monday morning and I read the story of Taylor Scout Smith. Taylor Scout Smith is a 12-year-old young girl from Tennessee who on January 5th died of a very sudden and very bad case of pneumonia. And as her parents were preparing for her memorial service and they were cleaning out her room and they were cleaning up her stuff, they found a letter that she had written to herself 10 years in the future. At 12, she wrote a letter to herself at 22 that hadn't been opened yet, and they got curious and thought, what did she tell her 22-year-old self? So they pulled out the envelope. It was labeled, Taylor's Eyes Only, unless I say otherwise, don't open until 4-13-2023. And she writes a letter to herself. Taylor, how's life? Life is pretty simple right now, 10 years in your past. I know I'm late for you, but I'm writing early, so congratulations on graduation from high school. If you didn't graduate, go back and keep trying, get that degree. Are you, and then she put in parentheses, we in college? If not, I understand. We do have pretty good reasoning after all. Don't forget, it's Alon's, that's her little sister. It's Alon's 11th birthday today. Sheesh, 11 already. In my time, she just turned one. I didn't get to go to that party though. I was in Cranks, Kentucky on my first missions trip and I've only been back for six days now. Speaking of, 12-year-old speaking to her 22-year-old self, how is your relationship with God? Have you prayed or worshiped or read the Bible or gone to serve the Lord recently? If not, get up and do so now. I don't care what point in your life that we're at right now, do it. Jesus was mocked and beaten and tortured and crucified for you. He was a sinless man who never did you or any other person wrong. Have you gone on any more mission trips? Have you been out of the country yet? I think I'm gonna sell my iPad and get an iPad mini. Don't forget to tell your kids that we're older than the tablet. I've attached a drawing for, of an iPad so you can show the kids. Well, I think that's all. Remember, it's been 10 years since I wrote this. A lot of things have happened, some good, some bad. That's just how life works. You just have to go with it. Sincerely, Taylor Smith. You know, I started thinking about that letter and I started thinking about the people at our church. We have 43 people at our church in 2013 that went on the mission field. And I had this question, if, if on the last day that we left India or Guatemala or Israel, you would have written a letter to yourself today, what would you tell yourself today to start doing spiritually again? Or what would you chastise yourself today that you've quit doing so quickly? that God birthed in you and you stopped. I I started thinking of all of us who had a week at summer camp somewhere in our past where God just radically changed our life. And we remember that week so clearly. 
I wonder if we would have at 15, 16, 17 on those weeks written a letter to ourselves today at 25, 35, 45, 55. I wonder what we would have reminded ourselves to do spiritually. I wonder for those businessmen in the room that prayed so hard that something would happen financially or in their career and it finally did and on that day you were elated that God answered prayer. If on that day you were to write a letter to yourself today, would you remind yourself today to just trust God, to just know it it was okay then, it was gonna be okay now? I wonder how many of us who have gone through the loss of a relative and had God be so close to us then, if we were to write a letter to ourselves today on that day to remind us that God was with us, I wonder what encouragement we would offer ourselves today. You see, it's not very often we have the ability to know how the future will end up if we act today, but the Beatitudes presents us that reality. Jesus says, if you will become this person spiritually, these things will happen in your life. And then he goes a step further in Matthew 5, 16. He said, and a lot of people will know who Jesus is. As I read this through this this week, I was so convicted. Because when I got into the actions, I thought, Lord, my actions are not always where they need to be. And I pushed away from my computer Wednesday afternoon when I got done with this. And I just, I just, I first went and talked to Danielle. Then I think I sent out a tweet. And then I just prayed and said, Lord, you got to help me because I'm not there yet. And every day this week, I've been praying over certain things that I've been learning. And I've given you this Sermon on the Mount challenge for this section of the year to read Matthew 5 through 7 every Sunday for the next 10 weeks on Sunday afternoon to write out the Sermon on the Mount if you want to go a step further than that, to memorize the Beatitudes or to memorize them together as a family, which Danielle and I started doing with our kids, or to memorize the entire Sermon on the Mount. Let me, let me, the entire reason for those challenges is so that you'll change to become more like Jesus. And today we've got a real good template of what needs to change to become more like Jesus if you heard it and let it settle in today. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to pray together. And as we pray, my question for you is what did God say to you today? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over this room.